Today we move on to Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. The title of today's message, You Had Better Be Running. Now, the text we will read sequentially as we go through here in just a few moments, but I want to begin by telling you about something that happened in March of 1994 at the Miami International Airport. A German tourist arrived there, and he checked into a local hotel near the airport. Later that night, he noticed in his room a very foul odor. And being a tourist and something of a regular international traveler, the man shrugged off the odor as just one of those things that you have to put up with from time to time when you're traveling. But the next morning, that that odor was even more foul-smelling. But it was time for him to check out, so as he was checking out, he went by the front desk, of course, to drop off his key, and he mentioned the problem to the attendant. Later that morning, a maid was sent up to clean the room, and she quickly discovered the source of that foul odor, because under the bed, she found a dead body. You know, friends, very often, our initial response to problems in our lives is to just simply hope they'll go away. But if we really understood how serious some of our problems are, we would be diligent. We would be vigilant in dealing with them. So with that background, let's look at verse 1 of chapter 3. I'm reading from the New King James Version. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. So we'll stop there. The message begins with those familiar words, I I know your works. But in this case, in the letter to this church, the works known by the Lord are not very good things. The other churches, he starts off by saying, you know, I know your works, and these become a matter of praise. Good things, works of service and ministry and faithfulness in a time of trial. He calls those works to mind in order to praise those churches. But here, the works are not all that praiseworthy. And the Lord uses the familiar refrain as an indictment rather than as a praise. So the church at Sardis apparently had a reputation as a church where there was always something going on. I guess we would put it that way in our modern parlance. Every time you drive by the church, the parking lot was full, the lights are on, the doors are open, something's always happening. And no doubt, again, speculation, but I think based on what we're reading, it's reasonable. That church in Sardis was well thought of by their pagan neighbors. They were a respected and established part of the Sardis community. They probably had a variety of outreach programs to provide food for the hungry, clothe the naked. And most likely their pastor was well respected in the community for his opinions about various matters. And yet, to the one whose opinion of them mattered the most, they were thought of as being dead or dying. So... The Lord identifies himself to this church through its pastor, its messenger. He says, these things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So he's telling 
the church at Sardis, that he is the one who has the sevenfold spirit of God. That is the Holy Spirit in all of his fullness. Christ is the one who sends the spirit forward to do his work. And the primary work of the Holy Spirit, according to scripture, is to regenerate the dead hearts of those whom the Lord has appointed unto salvation. Without the work of the Holy Spirit, there can be no new birth, no new life in Christ. And so, the Lord reminds this dead church that the only way they can become alive is through Him and through His Spirit. And the Lord tells this church that He has, He possesses the seven stars, another reference to His divine authority over those churches and its pastors. They are answerable, they are accountable to him alone who possesses the authority. All right, verse 2. He tells them, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect or complete before God. So, because you are a church that is about dead, he says, there is a little bit of spark of life in which you still have that it's not too late to strengthen or reinvigorate those things. But... He tells them the light is flickering. It's growing dim. And unless you do something, it will die completely. And all of this, all of this critical observation, while among the majority of the members of that church, apparently, and by reputation in the community, it was an alive church. I remember many years ago, and this will be the first of several references, if you will permit me, to a church that I was a member of in a different state many, many years ago when I first started seriously taking my Christian walk as a serious matter. It was a Pentecostal church. And I was there in a transition period where they'd had this old-time Pentecostal pastor for many, many years, and he was leaving and going somewhere else, and they called a much younger, more dynamic sort of church growth-oriented pastor, but this was long before, I guess, what we would call the church growth movement started, but, you know, that's sort of what they were into. And this new pastor dreamed up sort of a branding idea to call the church the church that is alive with love. Well, that's nice and quaint, and it worked. I mean, that church really quadrupled in membership over a period of time, but it, you know, it raises the question, what does it mean to be alive with love? I mean, how does that communicate to those outside the church? And so with the church in Sardis, we are presented with an example of how easy it is to throw away the Lord's standard of measuring aliveness or being alive. And I'll just keep up with the metaphor it's the Lord who defines what it means to be alive with love. Here is a church that by some measure is alive, but by the only true measure, by Christ's measure, it is in fact dead or dying. Jesus tells the church at Sardis that their works were not complete, they're not perfect in God's eyes. In other words, in their own eyes, or probably in the opinion of the community, their works are great, fine, top-notch. But they weren't great according to God's standard. Now, in verse 3, there's a hint as to what it was they were not doing that made their works incomplete. Look at verse 3. Remember, therefore, how you received and heard. 
Now, let me just stop. You may have a translation that says what you received. I'll speak to that in just a second. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief. And you will not know what hour I will come upon you. So, in this translation, the New King James, and I think the older King James Version, he tells them to remember how they received and heard. The ESV, the New American Standard, the Christian Standard Bible, they all have it read as what you received and heard. Now, the Greek term here could be translated either way, and it's sort of the context that determines it. And I think the New King James translators have the better idea. Because for the church at Sardis, how they received God's word, that was the important thing for them to remember. It's important because when it came to them, the word of God, as it did in many places in the Roman Empire throughout that time, much trial, persecution, and tribulation was the occasion of how that word came to them. How did they receive the kingdom message? They received it through the sacrifice of others who dared risk their lives to bring it to them. How did they actually receive it to themselves as a congregation or individually? Well, like everyone else, with willing and teachable minds, with gratitude for what it took to get it to them. That's how it was in the beginning, but just look at them now. They have forgotten all of that. Do you realize that in most all of these seven letters, the Lord makes some kind of reference to the, that church's facing persecution and tribulation for their faith and their testimony. But you notice, there's no mention whatever of any trial or persecution here in Sardis. And do we understand why that is? Because that church had made peace with the pagan and anti-Christian community of Sardis. How do we know that? Because of the history and the information that we have about the demographics of that city in those days. There were two major groups who opposed the message of the kingdom and hated the name of Christ Jesus. Sardis was at one time a capital city, and it was a place dedicated to the goddess Sibylle, or the earth mother goddess. And so that's the pagan component. But like many of the other bigger, more commerce-driven cities of the ancient world, it had a large Jewish population. And yet, in spite of these two opposing groups against the Christian message, there was no mention here at all that this church had any trouble with any of those who opposed the kingdom message of our Lord Jesus. Now, I, apparently they had found their comfortable niche in a pagan world. And they had no intention, no plans whatever, to rock the boat. Now, hold that image in your mind of a complacent pagan-friendly, anti-Christian friendly, friendly church with this that we read many, several years ago now as we studied through the book of Acts. One of the most remarkable passages I mentioned at that time, at least in my mind, is one of the most remarkable, is in Paul's second missionary journey. This is recorded in Acts 17, and I'm going to read you these verses. He's traveling with Silas. They come to Thessalonica. And, well, I'll pick it up from there. I'm reading primarily from the authorized version. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as was his custom, went into them. He visited them, in other words, 
And for three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that, to quote Paul, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them believed. Some of the Jews in the synagogues believed, in other words, and they joined Paul and Silas. And of the devout Greeks, the God-fearing Greeks, these are Gentiles who had not formally converted to Judaism, but they believed in Yahweh, a great many of them, and a significant number of the prominent women of the city. But the Jews that believed not, moved with envy, took unto themselves certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, that's the classic King James version of saying they gathered a mob of thugs and cutthroats, and they set all of the city in an uproar and assaulted the house of Jason, where Paul and Silas and the others were staying, apparently, and they sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they took Jason and certain of the brothers to the rulers of the city, to the city magistrates, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. These people who've created chaos over, all over the empire, whom Jason has received, these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. And they troubled the people and the magistrates of the city when they heard these things. And when they had taken security, in other words, when the magistrates had taken, uh, had received bond money, they posted bond for Jason and the others, they let them go. That's Acts 17, 1 to 9. So, see, there's nobody in Sardis who's accusing these Christians of turning the world upside down. You can be sure of that. But there was someone accusing them of failing in their mission, and that was no less than our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it was a lack of vision in the church at Sardis that led to this very serious warning from the Lord. Notice again what he says to them in verse 3. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you won't know the hour that I'm coming upon you. Now, there are two things we need to know about that statement. One of them, I guess what you'd call more a biblical, but the other one has to do with the history of this place. See, Jesus frequently used this thief-in-the-night language throughout his ministry, and it was always used by him as a warning of coming judgment, typically not the second coming final advent of Christ's judgment, but his judgment coming in various stages of history. In this case, his coming upon a self-satisfied church to bring judgment against him. But now there's also an interesting connection to the city of Sardis that plays right into this as well. Sardis was a city located on top of a very steep hill. It had natural fortifications and it was almost impossible for an opposing army or city to attack it successfully. And throughout most of its long history, the city of Sardis had been attacked many times, but for the most part, no opposing army was able to destroy it. However, on two occasions, the city of Sardis was dominated. It was sacked by enemy forces. And on both of those occasions, the attacks were a complete surprise. The city residents had no warning, so they didn't even have guards posted on the city walls. They weren't expecting an attack. And it was precisely at that time when the attack came, like a thief in the night. And so the Lord draws, I think, on this long memory 
of those in that church to remind them that they too may well suffer the same fate if they don't repent and hold fast. Listen again to verse 4. I'm going to read it this time from the New Jerusalem translation. He says, There are a few in Sardis, it is true, who have kept their robes unstained, and they are fit to walk or come with me dressed in white. So the only hope of that church was with the small minority of those who had not compromised. For many of them, though, for most of the congregation there, you couldn't tell the Christian from the pagan. And here the Lord refers to those faithful few as not having defiled their garments. They didn't dirty themselves by getting into the mud of false profession of faith and making common cause with evil. Or saying one thing with their mouths and living a totally different way. Now the color white, of course, is the symbol for purity. But notice that the Lord says that they shall walk with him. That should call to mind the Old Testament prophet Amos' words in Amos 3, verse 3, where the question is asked, Can two walk together unless they be agreed or united? In other words, you can't walk together with someone else unless there's a mutual agreement about where you're going, what direction. And for Christians, it is the Lord who has determined the direction that we are to walk in. We are obligated. We are bound to follow after him and walk as he does. Paul refers to this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, where he says, And you, you Christians at Ephesus, had been dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. So before you walk with the Lord, according to his law, you walked according to the pagan world, the, the law of Satan. Now you're walking in a different way. Walking with God is what Adam and Eve did before they sinned. And according to Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, it was God's habit to walk in the garden with the man and the woman to have face-to-face -face fellowship with them. But when they sinned, they would not. They could not have that fellowship any longer. They could no longer walk with their God because they had preferred their own way over his word, and thus the fellowship was broken. But to all who are truly in Christ, that fellowship, that walk, has been restored. Praise God. Now, let's close out this particular part of the chapter, verses 5 and 6. Reading again from the New King James Version. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. That's interesting, isn't it? He says, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so finally, we have the now familiar promise to those who overcome. And the imagery of being clothed in white is again used. To be clothed in white garments is to have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. It means to be covered in the righteousness of Christ. And then we read that statement that has puzzled many people and even caused some to completely go off the rails theologically. Part of the promise is that they will not have their names blotted out of the book of life. Christ will confess their names before the Father in heaven as being his people and therefore worthy to be so named. So some people have claimed that this means it's possible that once you have become saved, once you have become converted and a true follower of Christ, 
you can potentially lose that right standing before God. And some churches of the Arminian persuasion, not Armenian, but Arminian persuasion, theologically, they proclaim this as a doctrine. The belief that once a person becomes a Christian, then it's possible to lose that standing if you sin bad enough or long enough or hard enough. Now, let's, let's put some context in this before we see how totally erroneous that is. There are several references, and it's important to note all of them symbolic or figurative throughout the Bible to a book or books in which the Lord symbolically records the life, names, or deeds of people. One of the earliest that we encountered was in the book of Exodus some years ago when we studied through that book. The children of Israel had been punished by Yahweh for worshiping the golden calf, and now the Lord is threatening to destroy them all. But in a memorable exchange, Moses goes before the Lord and intercedes in a Christ-like way on their behalf. And in Exodus 32, verse 32, we read this. Moses says, Yet now, if you please are willing to forgive their sin, but if you won't, I'm paraphrasing a bit, I pray, blot my name out of your book, which you have written. So, okay, so there's one reference. But then the Apostle Paul, in the book of Philippians chapter 4, verse 3, he makes a reference to a book of life and names that are written in it. Now, that's some of the biblical context of the symbolic use of this imagery. There's another context that has to do with the ancient world and even the modern world. In the ancient world, it was a common practice to record the names of citizens of a town or a village uh, somehow on a maybe a, a parchment or a piece of stone or however they did it back then. They didn't have books like we have now. But they recorded people's names. And those who had been kicked out of the city or who had been executed for capital crimes or they'd been banished, their names would be blotted out from the book, removed from the list of citizens. And so we have here a common way of understanding what it meant to those people back then and maybe to some extent even now to belong to a community or a family of people. So it's altogether wrong and if you'll forgive me for saying so, downright foolish to imagine God Almighty sitting in heaven in front of this great huge pile of books and engaging in the never-ending job of bookkeeping, a, a job that would involve not only registering new names, but also the removal of names that had been previously recorded and the restoring of names that had been previously removed. Let's get a few things straight, shall we? I mean, I mean straight from the Word of God. First of all, that, again, is, is a symbolic way of expressing something that would have been easily understood to the people of the time when this letter to the seven churches was written. But staying with the imagery for a moment, we could say that there are no new names written in God's book of life that could be later removed. I realize what he says, I'll, I'll take your name out of the book of life. He's telling them that there. So what am I trying to say here? Well, let me put it this way. I referred earlier to a personal reference about this Pentecostal church that I was a member of many, many years ago. I owe a lot to that Pentecostal church. It's where I first understood something about Calvinism. I'll explain that in just a moment. But one of the things that I really appreciated about being in that church was the exuberant godly worship. Now, I'm not talking about the contemporary worship they do today in many of these churches and non-Pentecostal churches. This was the old-time Pentecostal way. 
You know, they had drums and guitars, but they were singing old-time revivalistic, mostly Baptist hymns. And one of them was this great old hymn. I mean, great in the sense that it's time-honored. Theologically, it's awful. It's called, There's a New Name Written Down in Glory, and it's mine. Oh, yes, it's mine. I can still hear it in my memory. There's a new name written down in glory, and it's mine. Oh, yes, it's mine. Of course, it goes on from there. And that hymn is full of sentiment and revival fervor, but it's far from being biblically correct. According to God's word, all the names in God's book of life have been written there from before the foundation of the world. Paul says in Ephesians 1, chapter chapter 1, verse 4, just as he chose us, he elected us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. So it's all clear right there. This is not something that happens later. It's predestination. It's election. And we don't even need to go back to the book of Ephesians. Here in the book of Revelation, chapter 13, verse 8, it says there that those whom the Lord chose from the foundation of the world, are said to have at that time had their names written in the book of life. God chose those whom he wished to save from before the foundation of the world. That is precisely the meaning of this reference to a book of life and the names written in it. They will not and they cannot be removed from the role of God's people because it is the Lord himself who keeps them there. And you still may have a question in your mind about this, but just hang on. I'm not done yet. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 28, I give them, that is those chosen from before the foundation of the world, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them or remove them from my hand. Now, I mentioned a moment ago, maybe to you a puzzling reference about how that Pentecostal church I was a member of was sort of responsible for me finding the Reformed faith by God's grace. And the way that happened was that this pastor of the church, when I was a member there, he was an old-time Pentecostal preacher. And Pentecostals, like many in the Baptist tradition, are principally opposed to Calvinism. And especially, as he understood it, and as our Baptist friends misunderstand it, what they call eternal security, or one saved, always saved. So this Pentecostal preacher was constantly preaching against this. Well, I shouldn't say constantly, but he occasionally, he did it enough to where it got my attention to look into it. This is the doctrine in Westminster Confession referred to as the perseverance of the saints. And that passage in the Confession, reflecting what Scripture clearly teaches, says that those who are truly saved, will persevere to the end. It's not that they once made an answer, an altar call, and made a decision. That means they're always saved. No, they are saved by God's grace, and they will walk, to use the language here, in that grace until the end. Now, that Pentecostal preacher, this passage in John 10, 28, he had a ready answer for that. Oh, but he said, it says here, no one can snatch them out of my hand, he said. But he said, that doesn't mean that a person can't take themselves out of the hand of Christ Jesus and remove themselves. Now, see, that fit his theology quite well. Because being an Arminian, a free willer, it was his belief that the only reason you got yourself placed into the hands of Christ is because you made a decision to do it. 
and you could just as easily decide not to. But thank the Lord, the truth is far different from that. We are placed, as Jesus clearly said, I give them eternal life. Jesus, uh, the Lord says, I have put their names in the book of life. But let's hold, let's hold on a minute. What about those who do apparently fall away? I mean, what was going on here at this church at Sardis was a group of people, many of them falling away, apparently. Those who profess Christ and even apparently do good works and, and live Christian lives, but then apparently fall away. I direct your attention to the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 17.3, where all of this is clearly addressed and spoken of. And the basic point is, just because a person becomes truly redeemed, sanctified, justified, called, converted, whatever, I'm not trying to do the ordo salutis here, but you know what I mean. That doesn't mean they're never going to have challenges in their walk into sanctification. And the confession teaches us they may fall away for a time, but they will be, and not, excuse me, they will not be finally lost. They will return. The reality is, if they are truly among God's chosen, they won't remain fallen away. They will repent, which is what the Lord calls these people to. They will repent and be restored to fellowship with Christ. But, so we're not done with this yet. On the other hand, there is a sense in which such people do have their names removed from the book or from a book. And I sort of alluded to it earlier. When a person falls away from the church, if they simply quit coming to church or if they're expelled from the membership of the church, there is a removal of their names from the church roles. But there has never been or ever will be a case of a true believer who has lost their salvation in Christ. That is the Lord's promise to all who overcome and to all who walk with him. But there's a very important thing to remember as we wind up this study today. Even though we are, as the Baptists say, eternally secure, I prefer the biblical wording, as even though we do and will persevere to the end, even though God's, God's people who've been chosen by him will persevere to the end and finally be saved and fully saved, it is you and I, it is we who must do the persevering. That's why this is a much better statement of what the Bible teaches than this once saved, always saved business. We must do the persevering. So in reality, the Lord's message to us, as well as to these believers in Sardis, is really more than just simply, you better wake up. It is that. That's why he says, you better you know, watch for the thief. Don't be caught unaware. Wake up. But it's more to it than that. Some years ago, a newspaper columnist wrote an account of his trip to Africa to observe wildlife. Maybe even went on a safari. I don't remember the details. But he wrote this fascinating and frankly riveting account of what he saw in Africa. And he said this. He said, every morning in Africa, a gazelle wakes up and it knows it must run faster than the fastest lion or it will be killed. Every morning in Africa, a lion wakes up and it knows it must outrun the slowest gazelle or it will starve to death. It doesn't matter whether you are a lion or a gazelle, he wrote. When the sun comes up, you had better be running. My friends, the message to the church at Sardis 
can be understood in this way. In the Christian life, it's not simply enough to wake up. We are called to run. We are called to persevere, to walk, to become more like Christ, and to press ahead into holiness and personal victory, cultural victory, and world dominion victory. And by God's grace, we will be successful. Let us pray.